You're listening to the We're Not Fine podcast with Doug Jensen and Dr. Talia Jackson. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. We are incredibly excited and privileged to have with us today Brian Sims, who has a, been a Democratic member of Congress in Pennsylvania since 2012. You're also an attorney, an advocate for the LGBTQ community, and the first openly gay elected state legislator in Pennsylvania. I'm incredibly personally and professionally excited to have you with us today. Doug, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to join you both. I'm glad to hear that. We're excited to have you here, despite uh, what was a very fun kind of introduction to this podcast and getting to know you. Um, we have so many questions, Brian. You know, our podcast, We're Not Fine, kind of focuses in on relationships. It focuses in on how we interact with, you know, one another, ourselves, our communities, and all of the above. And, you know, one of the things that I think is particularly striking is where we're at in terms of the divisiveness in this country. And as a politician, I can't tell you how curious I am. I probably have 50 million questions for you about how you manage yourself, but also how you manage relationships. And we so much want to talk to you about, like, you know, in, in general, like uh, as a politician in Pennsylvania, how has the current climate changed your relationship with your constituents, your colleagues, your community that you work within? That oh, has that's to be such the a... deepest. I know. Go ahead. Right. I can say it's such a big question. And it's, um, you know, when, when you all first reached out to me about, about having this conversation about joining you, I, I, it, it allowed me or forced me to think about my own relationships with my colleagues, with my constituents. And so I've been thinking about this for some time. And the, the truth is there's, there's one particular thing that I keep coming back to that I think has changed the most. Um, I'm a, as you, you said, I'm a civil rights attorney. And there, there weren't any in our legislature before me, and nor were there any out people. And I had spent a huge part of my career teaching people how to use their privileges. You know, if you're a, a guy combating sexism and misogyny, um, a white person combating racism, like, you know, what, using the privileges that we all have in this world to, to combat the systems of privilege. And so I, I did something very different when I got elected. I, I sort of promised my constituents that I wasn't going to wait for my colleagues of color to have to use the political capital of their race when pointing out racism in legislation, that I wouldn't have you know, wait for the women that I work with to have to point out the sexism and the misogyny in bills, that I could do that stuff right from the get-go because, frankly, the people introducing it look just like me. And so right from the get-go, I sort of told my colleagues and I told my constituents to expect something different from me. And what's changed is that the political environment of the last 10 years, the last decade, has really gone from one where, where you know, I, I became a legislator under the Obama era, where federal government was standing up and speaking out and protecting people who weren't protected and state government was not. And, you know, for me, what I have found is that 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 resolve, that ability to speak out for issues that don't directly impact me because it's the right thing to do, it's the moral thing to do, I think has taught more of my colleagues to do the same. Anybody can can find in law or in policy or in government places where they are hurt and speak up for themselves. If you have the ability, the empathy, the understanding to do it for other people, I think it teaches other people to do it for you. And I happen to come from a, a community that needs that help and support. 
Yeah, Brian, that's a powerful uh, statement and uh, amazing how it is that you've, I guess, generalized that to all the groups that are facing oppression and discrimination and bigotry. Uh, and I appreciate also you identifying the difference between the federal and state government, which I don't think, you know, we think all that much about, but what a role model uh, for taking care of that and opening that door and really being a, a model for how to do that. Impressive. It's Thank absolutely you. beautiful. And just to think about the idea of like with great power comes great responsibility. And it sounds like you've taken that so seriously and even being able to know that it is up to those that have the privilege to step up and advocate for others that don't and speak for the disenfranchised and oppressed. And it's just beautiful. So <clears throat> Doug and I, in our, one of our previous episodes, were having a conversation. It was about Roe v. Wade and the overturning of, of Roe versus Wade. And what we were trying to figure out was, is it even possible to have these really difficult conversations with people that don't feel the same as you? Can those be successful? How do you navigate that? And honestly, I think that we came out of that episode with more questions than answers. We were not able to figure out a way to navigate that. And I'm just so curious, how do you go about that? How do you think about yourself and your role in having these hard conversations with people that you know don't feel the same? Yeah, you know, there there aren't a whole lot of corollaries between you know, lessons learned in a legislature and, and everyday life all the time. But I think this is one of the really important ones for a very particular reason. When I set foot onto the House floor, I'm not trying to win a debate in front of an audience. I'm trying to get the people on the other side of an issue to agree with what I believe on that issue and then act upon that agreement. That's a very different scenario than most people think it is. If I was going in front of an audience, if there was 100 people watching me and a person on another side of the idea debate an issue, and if they felt like I did a better job debating, they would then therefore vote with my issue, That that I, I, would, I would invite that legislature some days. But the truth is my job is to sort of incept people. They not only need to think that I am right on an issue, but they then have to either change that what they have believed and acted upon up until that point, which is a very hard thing for people to do, or they have to do something that they haven't done before, which is also often hard for people. And so I find that there are generally three ways to do that. The number one is empathy, first and foremost, the, the fastest way to make somebody do something that they haven't been doing before or change a, something that they've been doing is to is to get them to empathize with somebody or something that is impacted by one of those behaviors. And that can be complicated. Empathy is a hard thing for some people. Some people can only empathize with people that they know and identify with or think that they are like. Some people want to empathize with everybody all the time fully. Um, and so creating an empathetic response, and that, sometimes that can just be holding up a mirror, sometimes be holding up a family portrait, just showing people what they're not thinking of. Um, one of the other ways is fear is to create fear that that if they don't act the right way if they if they if they continue doing the thing that they're doing that they that people will be hurt and that there will be retribution or repercussions to them i hate saying it but sometimes just convincing a legislator that a vote might make them lose their seat in the next election can oftentimes make them vote better 
I use equality as an example all the time. The vast majority of people in my state support LGBTQ equality, even though the legislature does not. And I say it to legislators all the time. You are going to have a challenger that does believe, like the majority of your constituents, that a woman should have control of her body, that a person should have control of their love life and their relationships. And you're going to lose to that person. So why not become that person now? Um, the, the last way, I, I think, is it, which is um, something that I don't often I, I try not to do, and that is shame. Um, shame can be a really powerful tool and it's not to be used lightly. I think what you see people trying to th throw shame around a lot, but there are a lot of people who, who, who behave almost shamelessly. And if you can show them the shame in their actions, it can, it can change their behaviors, if not just to avoid the repercussions of being shamed again. I'm curious, Brian, if you were to evaluate your level of success in integrating any of those approaches what do you what do you find these days because i feel like you know I, and I, go ahead yeah no no please i was just going to say brian you know one of the things and this is why i think Tali and i struggled with the conversation about roe v wade i tend to think there's a there's a right and a wrong you know and i i think in terms of like human equality i struggle as a as a clinician to understand how anyone would ever suggest that they are more entitled or more deserving of something that someone else doesn't have um, and, you know, marriage equality is one of those things that I, I might bring up. So looking at those three items, which I'm, you know, kind of processing as quickly as I can, fear, shame, um, and, and really, you know, what you said about creating empathy, one of the frustrations that I've experienced is we've been around as, like, I have two kids, um, I'm a gay identified person, I've been a clinician and a contributing member of our community, um, and all the work that we've done since Stonewall in 1969 has really limited effect when people are considering taking away those rights again. And I'm like, do we have to resort to what in order to get people to understand? Because we're out everywhere now, right? So that's the question. Like, you know, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that our visibility is is cr critically important. Our, however you define it. I, I don't I don't believe in the sort of marginalization Olympics in part because you can't really compare marginalization, but you can compare the lessons that you learn from marginalization and you can teach other people the lessons that you've learned from marginalization. And it's also part of the reason that marginalized people, I think, are so good at some of the things that we are talking about. Um, marginalization teaches people a lot of fortitude. It teaches people how to overcome shit. Right? If you've never had to overcome any shit, you don't know how to overcome shit. But if your life is spent dealing with and learning how to adapt, how to be flexible, how to spot problems, how to how to triage scenarios that are coming at you, you're really useful. And we we see this in in sort of business and social data all the time. If you want a business to be successful in the United States, it better have women in management and it better have first and second generation immigrants involved. Not just because customers want to see that reflected in the businesses that they're doing business with, because there are core competencies that come from those life experiences that are highly valuable to, to, to business right now. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of two things. One is that our country, our communities are significantly better off when we are all contributing. It sounds trite to say, but a lot of us are really good about saying it's them running the show and they're doing a terrible job. We're all, we're all in charge of running the show as well, not just stepping up and running for office, but impacting nonprofit and public interest work, sharing information, talking about what community means. The other thing is to not assume that people are enemies until they make it clear that they are. There are the vast majority of my Republican colleagues support marriage equality, even though 100% of them have voted against it every chance they have ever had to vote. 
Now, but so how do you make sense of that? How does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. But what does is that if we were doing nothing, if we weren't approaching them, if we weren't pushing for change, this we'd find ourselves 10 years from now still in the same place. We introduced non-discrimination in my state 16 years ago, and it still hasn't passed. It wasn't the wrong time 16 years ago. It was just going to take 18 years, maybe 20 years to do. I, I found that if I have, I'm, a, I'm an empath, like I'm guessing both of you are. And if I have to absorb the, the mental gymnastics that my colleagues have to engage in to be the hypocrites that they are on these issues, it would swallow me whole. And I think they want, they want us to. They want us to wrestle intellectually with the hypocrisy while they're simultaneously not supporting our rights. And so for me, I have to set aside my intellectual concerns with how can you think this, but say that? How can you vote this way, but talk to me here? How can you expose me to COVID and you know, all of those things? I got to set that aside because I have a job to do. And my job is to get them to understand that equality is the right thing for them, the right thing for us, the right thing for, for, for community. And so it's, it's, maybe it's my mental gymnastics. It's setting aside the things that I can change and impacting the things, you know, or setting it that I can't change and impacting the things I can. I mean, Sorry, Doug. You're bringing up such interesting points also that, I mean, just thinking about politics and therapy and just like the, I am so fascinated by resilience and how many times must you have been knocked down and had to figure out how to not only get back up, but get back up with pride get back up with some sense of also hope where you're leading and you're encouraging and you're inspiring. That is really hard to fake. And so how do you even just muster up this renewed, renewable resource of courage and resilience to just every day be you and show up and be an inspiring trailblazer. Well, first of all, that's, that's damn flattering. I'm going to make sure my mom catch, catches this clip of, of the podcast for sure. No question. Um, I, I'd say it's two things. One is I've made a lot of mistakes in my career. Uh, you know, the, the times that I have been on the ground and bloodied have not always been people who kicked me to the ground and bloodied me. Sometimes it's been me. I've tripped and fallen face first on the ground a couple of times. And so the ability to get back up that's where privilege lies. Privilege is being able to make a mistake, but get up and try again. And a lot of people are robbed of that opportunity. When you make, you, you, you slip up just one time and you never get to back, get to sort of back in the game, back in the race, back on the horse. But if you have, the more privileges you have, the more opportunities. Talia, to answer your question, part of the reason I, I am okay in doing this is I have the, the perspective of knowing that the average queer person doesn't get to live the life I am living right now. The average trans 15-year-old Latina in Baltimore, her life sucks. You know, a, a queer kid right now in Nebraska uh, at, at 19 who's afraid he can't come out to his parents or they're going to kick him out of the ag school he managed to get himself into. And so my life is better than that. And until, until we've all got it the same, I have the perspective of knowing that on my worst day, my worst day has not been even comparable to the, the, the day of, a, of a, a, a trans person of color in New Orleans. And so have a little- So respect. you're feeling like the privilege and the platform create almost an obligation of yeah. dusting yourself off and 
not feeling sorry for yourself and standing up tall and fighting the good fight because it's not just your fight. Well, I feel those things, right? Like I, I think the the mistake would be pretending that I don't or I, I guess if I didn't feel them, I wouldn't know how to deal with them. And so I, 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 I feel anger and frustration. You know, 20 million people a couple of years ago watched me lose my shit on Facebook when I was exposed, my, when my colleagues were all exposed to COVID. In the height of the COVID crisis, pre-vaccine, my Republican colleagues were forcing us to be in session so that they could remove the governor's emergency powers, forcing us to wear masks. And in the middle of it, they exposed us to COVID and covered it up. I had just secretly donated a kidney and it was for nobody. It was, that was nobody's business. You know, I had colleagues who had premature babies. I had colleagues dealing with cancer and they, they exposed us all to that. You know, so there's a lot of anger and frustration. The, my, my task on a daily basis is what am I doing with it? And some days I've done dumb shit with it. And then some days I've done really meaningful, important stuff with it. And that gets more done and I feel better about it. So I want to do more of that. I also spend a week of every month in the woods camping and hiking. And so, you know, it's not like I'm doing it all so well all the time. You mentioned so many things that are so important. You know, I want to go, I want to go back a little bit. One of my clients actually said at one point that there's no unity, uh, with, you know, there, without unity, there's no community because of course it's part of the word. And you use the word community, Brian, several times in your comments. And really, I, I think it's one of the most important things. We really do have to remember that we're all in this together. And if all of us are participating in make the, making this country and world a better place, we're all going to feel that effect for sure. You also reference a pretty uh, significant therapeutic intervention, which is to kind of reality test what is within our control and what isn't. And, you know, even as Talia and I might be in a little different capacity as therapists, we have a, a really strong ability to have an impact on those same people that you're describing, that you have a different role in helping to feel their power and to feel their privilege and to, you know, make sure that they they know that they deserve what it is that all of us have as a quality life. Um, I think the other piece that you do really nicely in your comments, Brian, is you're talking about an awareness of your privilege and your your awareness that sometimes you're your own worst enemy, which all of us can be, of course. And, you know, it kind of brings us to a third question that I think we have for you today. You know, as a gay identified individual, um, I am somewhat curious, you know, if you dug a little bit deeper and thought about how some of your colleagues within the house um, how they've maybe treated you differently or whatnot. You mentioned that a bunch of your Republican counterparts really aren't against human equality when it comes to gay people. Do you feel treated differently? Did you at the beginning of your career in 2012? Yes, in, a, in lots of different ways. Um, I have colleagues that treated me with sort of kid gloves, didn't know what to do with me, knew that they, if they were interacting with me, they were probably going to screw something up and were afraid of that. I had colleagues for, for that, that wanted to, that sort of wanted to prove to me that they were okay with LGBTQ people and kind of overdid it, which I, I don't, I don't mind either. I'll tell you that one of the frustrations I had is that my first couple of years in office, I lived in town, I lived in the capital, and we'd see all my colleagues out at night and, you know, a lot of them drinking and, and dinners and all of that. And I had a group of conservative women colleagues that every time they were drunk, I was just their best friend. You know, uh, arms are all the arms around just to, and it was that, it was that gay best friend crap that, you know, if you're going to vote against my equality, you know, the, we're, we're not best friends. And um, I, I, there, I, there's an interesting sort of uh, 
a thing. My first term, a uh, I got up to speak about marriage equality. It happened the July that I had been elected, July 2012, um, and I was speaking about marriage equality, and my microphone was cut off by because a Republican in the House um, uh, didn't want me speaking, and he objected to me speaking on the floor. And it it turned into this massive days long back and forth with one of the most conservative members. But my Republican colleagues got to watch one of their own openly discriminate against a member that had never happened. You know, we'd never had an out member. And it, it probably, it probably opened more eyes than, than not. You know, it was in retrospect, it was probably a good thing for equality, which for me was a terrible day. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the way that my colleagues treat, treat me, um, has changed wildly over the years. I am one of the most visible state legislators in American history and oftentimes disproportionate with the work that I do. But, and I think there's a little bit of resentment about that. But in a legislature where I am falsely in the minority party, we are a gerrymandered legislature. My ability to draw attention to issues and to bring in stakeholders is something like they've never seen before. And that, that scares a lot of people who don't believe in, in change or don't believe in equality. And I'm glad that it scares them. I was just going to say, keep scaring them. I think that scaring them is the only way forward. And feel free to threaten them that Tali and I will show up at at any time to do our episode there. Oh, you didn't mean like physical violence. You were just saying. Uh, I'm not yeah, saying. Well, podcast. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to clarify what I meant. Um, I want to. I want to flip the question a little bit, Brian. So we're talking a lot about your role with your constituents. We're talking about your role with your colleagues. How do you feel constituents can best interact with their elected officials at this point in time, given the heat of these issues, et cetera? What is most helpful for you? Um, one of the things that I've always been cognizant of, so I, re I represent about 90,000 people in the core of Center City, Philadelphia. It's one of the most educated districts in my state. And that means for me, experts. I'm an expert on a couple of things. I'm an expert on equality and non-discrimination and LGBTQ issues, but I vote on a thousand bills a year. And that requires a whole lot of expertise outside of what I have. Now, the vast majority of those issues won't get an expert weighing in. No, no lobbyists will care enough to, to, to come in and bring experts to talk to us. But I tell people all the time, if you have expertise on a particular issue, there is probably policy being made with respect to that issue. And your elected officials need and deserve your country, your community needs and deserves your expertise. Lend it. Whether that means going to meet with your elected officials and letting them know, um, I'll also say my colleagues generally, especially my conservative colleagues, are scared of five types of people. They're scared of parents. They're scared of kids. They're scared of veterans. They're scared of doctors. And they're scared of experts. Go, expert doesn't mean you're, you have an advanced degree. It can mean you have an experience that, that matters. Find your level of expertise on a policy issue and go meet your legislators. Also, social media, while we all use it and engage in it, and I sure do, is still a very lousy way to interact with your elected officials. Um, I, I, last thing I say is if you can't find a good elected official around you, you can't find a good one to vote for, become that person. More of us need to be, need to be running for office. The, 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 um, Williams Institute out of UCLA says that there are just about a thousand out elected officials in the United States and that there should be 28,000 of us based on the demographics of the United States. If you can't find the right elected official, it's probably you. That's amazing. I'm always telling people that if you can't find what you're looking for, 
step up and create it or and you're saying become it that we're always thinking about like oh i'm not political or that's not my jurisdiction that's not my realm and what i hear you saying it's even just I, i keep on thinking about like ask not what you could, what your country could do for you. Right. But like Mm -hmm. step up and do something. If you don't like the way things are being run or you don't like the conversations that are being had, step up and do something about it. Doug, that he's speaking to you. I think you're the (laughs) one who needs to step up. There are a few old women in my, uh, East of the twin cities division of the country. While Betty McCollum is my amazing representative, um, there are a few old women who always write me in for mayor. I will not do it. I have a busy enough life. Yeah. That's what I've decided. You'd have to go like Mayor Doug. <laughs> It'd have to be like really real first person, real casual, just Mayor I Doug. I do see a t-shirt in that. Uh-huh. I think we missed one on the merchandise. Yep. There we go. Thank you for that. Now I'm inspired. Can I completely derail us and ask about, this is what I'm really, really interested in. You know, politics are fascinating in and of themselves, but what I really care about is relationships. And how how do you even navigate this? I feel like what you are, what you've told us is that you are modeling being very human. You are your personal life, your professional life. You are your private, your public. You are all of the things how do you navigate that? Like, how has your political career impacted your dating life? How has your dating life impacted your political career? How do you walk the line? Yeah, it's been tough. tough. It's tough. Um, one of the things that's true of um, firsts, um, and and I knew this running for the House of Representatives, that p- part of what we needed in my state wasn't just our first out legislator. That per- we needed to show people an out legislator. If, if It couldn't be done in private. It couldn't be done in secret. And so I knew I was going to both ask for and receive a level of attention that would be different. And, and, and part of getting that attention was creating change. And so I, you know, I've, I've had a couple of relationships where it was, it was great for relationships and a couple where it was not. Um, good news is I'm I'm very much in love at the moment. I, I met somebody a little over a year ago um, and have been and managed to date somebody through a statewide lieutenant governor's race and then a loss. And and my I I am more in love with this guy than I was, you know, six months in when I realized I was falling in love with him. I love that. And so, I mean, I am just imagining that has been as you, I mean, it's like all of the firsts, right? And trying to navigate that together while you're in love, while you're falling in love. Yeah. And it does, it just like, I can imagine that going through all of the bumps and bruises and ups and downs of the political, you know, landscape, you have seen it all in that, in your relationship. Like you truly have probably seen the best and the worst of each other in a really short amount of time. Yeah, shit that would make my mom blush. <laughs> well, she's joining us in about a minute, yeah. Brian. So you can, you can. Yeah, Mary Beth. Uh, <laughs> look, my mom's a colonel in the army. Oh. My mom and dad are both colonels. Okay. Yeah, she doesn't blush. Either. We need her on the next episode. Brian, you know, you said yeah. something. My mom could beat the hell out of me. <laughs> I'm 43. Do you know, my mom was also a 
was she a colonel? My mom was in the Israeli army. Yeah. Oh, she could still beat me up today. <laughs> oh, she's yeah. still terrifying. I'm not going to lie. And I always thought that like, oh, she's so intense because she's Israeli. Oh, no. Her entire family also calls her the boss. She's like you know, a force to be reckoned with. But she taught all of the soldiers how to disassemble and reassemble Uzis with blind. Imagine that, like, on. you will pack your school lunch and get going, I said. To you. Yeah, <laughs> yes, do mom. not mess I with think we, mom. Or I think Mary we Beth. need Mary Beth and Talia's mom on an episode about women and strong women uh, who can kick ass in all kinds of ways. Yeah. And then I will be, well, go ahead. I say mine's also 73, so she would be like this the whole time. Like, oh, it's so nice to join you guys. Okay, oh Brian, I did that for the first few episodes. So Mary Beth and I have a lot in common as well. Brian, you said something uh, at the beginning of this podcast as well that I think is probably critical, even, you know, as Talia's question about your personal relationship and your dating life and your, your, uh, your, your, your more personal part of things. You know, the reality is balance is important. It's important to everybody. And so when you talk about that week that you take off and you go to the woods and you hike and you... YouTube and you do whatever else, uh, paintball, what, whatever we want to put on that calendar. Um, you know, the reality is that balance is going to be critically important. We're all human at the end of the day and have the same needs for that balance and that, you know, privacy from your, your very, very uh, visible life. So I'm glad you have that. I'm glad you've integrated that. Um, of course, you have two relationship experts that you can contact at any time. There's a problem in those relationships. <laughs> And uh, yeah, reduce charge for sure. You know, what What I have found is that even even when I'm working, which I do remotely a, a lot, if I, I spend a lot of time in my state's state parks, um, June is our budget month. I spend the entire month at a state park just outside of our capital in a tent or in a cabin if I can if I can get one. And what I have found is that wait, waking up and stepping out and building a little fire, throwing a little coffee on, you know, stretching, and then, you know, putting on a suit and driving to work, whatever, and doing that all in reverse at the end of my day really, really helps helps sort of ratchet me down from the intensity of of the technology and 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 just sort of the craziness of the visibility of it all. And it it you know I, I don't know if at first when I started I really heavily started pro being proactive about spending a little bit more time in the woods. I think it was a bit of a defense mechanism against all of it. Now now it's a now I know proactively it's kind of like meditation. Like I know proactively if that I do this I'm going to be okay. And if I don't do it I'm going to struggle. So might as well do it. I can't tell you how much I love that. I mean, it sounds like at the beginning, it may have just been like, I need a vacation from my life. I need an escape plan from the craziness and the busyness. But now it is a part of your self-care routine where you're just grounding. And it sounds like you feel your most you and your most grounded when you have unplugged, your feet are on Mother Earth, you are in nature and not with a blue screen in front of your face at all times and available to everyone. It's incredible. I can't, I can't stop thinking about how uncomfortable it is to sleep in the woods. So I'd like to know how you're getting your best sleep. I guess I'm more of a glamper and less of a camper, but I'm picturing you lying on like some, you know, logs rocks and sticks yeah rocks and sticks with like nests and yeah i don't I, know 
Can you like paint a picture for me? Because I, I really am a glamper who's a big appreciator of king size beds and high yep. thread counts. I am. I like great wine, bedside tables. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, let me let me just to be to be really clear here. I mean, I I dress like a picnic table, but I'm not trying to to rough it. I like I'm not trying to bang sticks together to make fire. Um, I I have a couple of different types of tents. Um, one of them is a hammock tent. It hangs from three different points, and so it's naturally you know like a hammock. It's pretty comfortable. Um, I can have that 50 feet up in trees. I can set it up over a river or over a creek. I've had it some cool places. Um, if I'm on a tent that's actually or on the ground, I have a couple of different types of, of camping pads, and they've all gotten a lot better over the years. 20 years ago when we were kids, it was like you, you like, you know, rolled up a wool blanket and scratched your way through the night and, you know, on a boulder. No, it's not, nothing like that. I am I don't rock that's it. That's it really well. And I, so I also have a, I have a Newfoundland dog. I have a 135 wow. pound dog that I just and, uh, and she makes a great big spoon. Oh my gosh. That is so cute. I love it. I feel like you are winning at life. I don't. Whatever I'm you're doing, I feel like it's working. Keep up the good work. We all need it. Newfoundland. You want to hear a therapist say, holy shit. Thank you. Winning at life. I don't know. Maybe the next episode, we're going to dig deeper into like the mess. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. For now, I'm really, really feeling like you are winning at life. Um, this is not one of our questions, but it was the cutest thing ever. I was, I was watching some YouTube videos of other people interviewing you. And there was something that you said that I loved so much, but it was just someone asking, you know, what advice would you give your younger self? And you were like, oh, it would be to just embrace your inner weird. weird. Or did you say strange or weird? I loved it so much because that is the goal of life is if you stop apologizing for yourself and you just embrace who you are and what makes you so different than everybody else there's it's a win-win yeah i i don't know if you if you think about what what of your friends you would describe about them to somebody else that knew you liked them it's often the weirdest things that you would lead with no not not always like we all we all have our oddities that put people off but most of our our strangeness i think is what attracts uh, people to us and what attracts us to other people. If um, I, I think I think about this often in terms of success, if all you ever show people or tell people about are your successes, all you are doing is creating distance between them and you. A success is literally something you did that they haven't done. And it's just creating distance. When people get to see your mistakes, when they get to see your foibles, when they get to see your trips and all of that, it is so much easier to relate to that than it is to relate to pristineness or ivory towerness. And so like be a mess because I don't know, we're all the Cheerios that are gonna float together in the bowl. That's a good saying for sure. And we're all human for sure. Yeah. And you're modeling that humanity. That's our goal with this podcast as well, is to not be perfect and polished, but to be very human um, and to talk about very human things. Brian, it was an incredible pleasure today um, having you with us and your disclosure and your willingness to go in a number of different ways was was great. Uh, we're grateful and appreciative of, um, you know, one of the things 
I just want to say in the big scheme of things, and I'm not going to age myself, but I grew up at a time when there were no models for gay people. There were no models for gay relationships. There were no models for gay parents. Um, and I kind of managed my way through it. And I feel very privileged to be in the position I'm at. But I know you've referenced it a couple of times. And I just personally want to thank you for being a model for all of those people you referenced in all of those places of our world where all of those LGBTQ kids, uh, those adults who are struggling with integrating their honest self, I think the minute we show them and we model for them what it is that we can be and that there are possibilities, I think there's hope. And that maybe is the key word for everyone. So I wanna thank you very personally for all the work that you do and the visibility that you have. It means a great deal to, my, to me. Doug, I'm, I am, um, I'm very touched by that. I I am very flattered by that. I uh, I've often thought, why be another sort of horse in the herd when you can be a unicorn? And I think most people need to hear that as kids and hear that as young people. I think all of us, if we if we could have shed some of the trauma that was imposed upon us and some of the trauma that we imposed upon ourselves by just not thinking that conformity is the standard, we'd all be a whole lot better. Off. I think so too. Brian, is there anything else you want to share with our viewers today? Uh, just that if mom, you're listening, I love you. And to my boyfriend who will undoubtedly be watching this, I love you too. <laughs> and a therapist just said, I've got my shit together, babe. It's true. It's true. He did hand me a $20 bill before the episode to beg me to say that, but I can sign somewhere if you need. And a also note. to both of them, we're here for you too. If Brian ever becomes a challenge. <laughs> Wait, Tuesday? Good. Tuesday. All right. <laughs> I have an opening at two. I'll see you then. <laughs> Guys, Brian, seriously, you. it has been such a pleasure. I feel like I could talk to you all day. And I also feel like the one thing that maybe, uh, you know, three out of the four of us have in common is that maybe our what we really should have been were stand-up comedians. But here we are in a completely different role. Actually, Brian, you did some really good ventriloquism. Oh, yeah that I thought was very impressive that maybe if you were looking for a secondary career path, that could be something. This is where I like, I press play on a tape and just close my mouth. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> Guys, really, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've been a policymaker a long time. And the thing that I know that changes people's viewpoints the most is exposure. Just hearing about issues, hearing people talk about issues, hearing the language and the lexicon that people use is going to change more hearts, more minds, and more policy than any elected official any of us have ever met. So thank you for making the world I live in better too. We appreciate that as well, Brian. You take good care of yourself. Well, that was fascinating to meet with Brian Sims today. You know, I think one of the pieces for me, Talia, is like, we are so politically minded. We are so focused on politics right now related to the number of issues. And we had the access to actually approach one of them specifically who is actively advocating on behalf of humanity and, and facing all of these issues. I was really fascinated. We could have talked for another few hours. He is truly amazing. I also, I could have talked to him forever. And he's so fun and funny and personable and so articulate, so good at what he does and so passionate about the privilege, the platform, the obligation. Um, didn't you think it was so interesting to hear what he had to say about how to change people's minds? I did. Um, 
and yet that that was part of the conversation that I wish we could have had a lot more time on because what was it? Empathy, fear, shame. shame. Um, and I think I think it's an interesting thing. I, I think everyone is trying their own way of kind of going to the other side uh, to have conversations about really difficult topics as we've been talking about. And, you know, Talia, I'm so struck by the fact that you and I are very smart people, I think, and not to, you know, I say that with as much humility as I can, but we talk about this stuff all the time and we didn't have really great answers or solutions to that issue. I also don't know that I think those are incredibly clear or easy or, you know, that they might even not have the same level of effectiveness that they might have 10 years ago, given how incredibly divided people seem to be. Well, I think that also it's important to note he's talking about politics versus therapy versus relationships with people that you actually are terrified to burn a bridge or turn someone off, turn someone away. Um, And so it is really interesting to hear about just the idea of we use whatever techniques and tactics we can use to change people's minds versus I think that I, where you and I were getting stuck is the only tool we really have in our tool belt was the empathy. Is the empathy and to try to communicate what it is that we experience or the other side or, you know, I don't even want to go to sides. Like we are all as human beings capable of having an experience, right? And I've, I've absolutely kind of come, you know, to a place in my own life where I'm not concerned about what someone else thinks or what they decide to do with their lives. What I struggle with is that we're at a place in history where we're telling other people what to do with their lives or bodies or whatnot. And that's where that line is for me. I don't I don't have any concern with any client who ever comes into my office who is of a, a particular religious or non-religious persuasion or chooses to have a relationship a certain way. I have zero issue with that as long as it's honest for them and and they are content and satisfied with that. What's happening in politics, though, is that, of course, people are making decisions for other people. And that's where I get so confused as a therapist. Like, that's so not what like if somebody came in, Tali, and said, you know, we really think that we'd like to control these other people in our lives and and we would see them as narcissistic or we would see them as psychopathic or sociopathic. So Brian's approach on the political side of things, he also said something, and I, I'm going to process it later because I don't even remember the specific quote, but that you know he's he's not going into debate and try to win a debate. He's going in, I, I couldn't tell, it was like, it was like educate and, and I have to go back and, and listen to it again. But it was really profound to me. He just has a different population. He's not talking to the general population. He's talking to other people who are elected officials and different, different group of people. I loved the conversation with him. I'm so glad we had him on. He's such an interesting person doing such beautiful work for the GLT, GLBTQ community and just such an inspiration in general to everybody because he's living his truth and he's modeling his humanity and he is brave in these really big real ways that contribute to other people's rights and better lives. I mean, I he needs to keep up the good work. One of the things, Talia, that you just referenced that I think is most striking to me, I think people who have a very public persona or identity, I think can probably easily lose sight of their humanity and their humility. Um, And I think there's just something really magical about how Brian talks about himself. And I think you referenced a YouTube video you had seen of him uh, about his being weird. 
I think there's something very magical about just, again, kind of maintaining an awareness of yourself and being that honest person versus trying to please somebody else or be something, be something for somebody else that I think so many people in that profession not only might be doing, but also just, you know, as a gay identified person, we've all done that. We've all tried to accommodate mainstream society to fit in at certain times in our lives. And it's really never okay. So um, kudos to Brian on his ability to regulate and manage that and kind of not only recognize his privilege, but really put him out, put himself out there in the most, I want to say, human um, and honest way possible. Um, really impressive interview. I would delight in having him again, plus his mother, Mary Beth, and your mother. We need to get them on. Powerful women. Love that. We need a new episode. Love it. Have a question for Doug or Talia. Email us your questions at questions at renotfine.com. Eligible questions will be randomly selected for upcoming episodes. For details, visit our website at we'renotfine.com. Join us every Tuesday for new conversations, new challenging topics, and fun.